My name is Sud Sutherland. I worked on shows like Superman, The Flash, Batwoman, Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast coming to you from a hidden land somewhere. Don't know where, just somewhere. I'm your host Craig and we are here to discuss the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe entry, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Joining me for this is someone from a different hidden land, maybe. It's Kat. Hello. Hello. I am here to potentially infiltrate and or destroy your hidden land. Oops. Possibly drown it. Who knows? Yes, maybe. Hmm. Or... Cover it in sand. I don't know. We haven't had a sandy hidden land yet. Yes, it can be a sandy hidden land. (laughs) Anyway, Wakanda Forever. That's a Marvel movie that was released and doesn't quite close off Phase 4 because the Guardians holiday special is apparently the epilogue of Phase 4. Oh, is it really? Who even knows anymore? I think they'll just make things up until they all slot in. (laughs) Remember when Age of Ultron was the end of Phase 2 and it's, oh yeah, Ant-Man actually is the end of Phase 2. And also (laughs) Ant-Man. And Endgame is the end of Phase 3. No, actually Spider-Man is. Mm-hmm. So who knows anymore? But anyway, Wakanda <laughs> Forever, let's start without spoiling. So what did you think of this film? I really enjoyed it. I don't know that it was as impactful or groundbreaking as the first one was. It's a tall order for most sequels, but I think it sets out to deal with some pretty heavy things for a Marvel movie. And I think it does that fairly well. I definitely got emotional quite a few times. I think there's a very interesting narrative continuing the kind of anti-colonial narrative that the first one builds on. We kind of get a different perspective of the same issue of colonial violence and what do you do if you are outside of that or can you protect yourself from that and what's your responsibility and all of these things which is the biggest and most impactful thing about the first film so this one kind of takes that spins it a different way and then also deals with some really heavy grief which is not really a spoiler because we all know that Chadwick Boseman left us before this could get filmed and so the movie does deal with this and I felt it. I felt the loss. I felt the, the the where do we go from here kind of sentiment. It's beautiful. It's shot very well. It's gorgeously colored. The score is great. Ludwig Goransson comes back for that. Ryan Coogler's uni friend. And also, surprisingly, question mark, very girl power on this one. Because I guess we don't get Chadwick, the weight kind of falls on the ladies to lift the story and they're the ones who move us forward. It was just really great. I noticed at some point halfway through the film, I was like, oh, actually this entire thing is on the shoulders of all these badass women of color. And I dig it. I like it very much. Not as breathtaking as the first one, but it's got a lot to say. I like my Marvel movies to be fun and also have something to say. So yeah. That's an interesting point, actually. I hadn't really considered how few male characters are wearing the Black Panther 
subset of the Marvel Universe. I think it's maybe because in the first film, the few male characters sort of overpower the narrative. Maybe not in a bad way, but they certainly do. You've got T'Challa, who's a king, and M'Baku, who is a leader of another area. So they sort of steal the centre stage in some ways, but... Yeah. Everyone else is women, really. So, yeah, interesting. Well, I hadn't really considered that. It's very female-centric, because obviously the lead is now Shuri, who is trying to step into her brother's shoes in some ways, and that's not a spoiler, I wouldn't say. Well, it's in the non-spoiler section, so the listeners can hound me if they want, if, <laughs> if I've unduly spoiled something. Oopsie-doopsie. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> it's done now. I enjoyed it. I wasn't blown away, but also wasn't disappointed by it. I think I more or less got what I expected out of it. I really liked what they did with Neymar because that's a really hard one to get right, I think. And I don't mean right in terms of slavish comic book adaptation. I mean right in terms of making him credible because if you look at a lot of stories featuring Neymar back in the 60s and when he was introduced and things, which was before the 60s, he's kind of ridiculous. So he's one of those characters that might not translate properly but I think they did it really well. I felt the length of the film, I definitely did, and I feel like it's a little bit clunky in the way it's structured in places, but I think there's a specific reason for that as well. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. I just wasn't blown away by it and mm-hmm. I know that different people have different reactions to it. I know that Chadwick Boseman and T'Challa had a specific hold on chunks of the audience who suddenly felt really connected to this character and that's absolutely valid and expected in a lot of ways but I don't think I was quite on that level and I don't think I would be expected to be on that level necessarily but I think it was good. It's one of the stronger entries of phase four which for some isn't a high bar. <laughs> I very much agree with that. I think movie-wise phase four has been on the weaker side, for sure. I think we've had this conversation on the podcast before and definitely off the podcast, but the sheer amount in this phase, <laughs> it's exhausting to me personally. But they're not that graph of how many hours we're in every phase and phase four is just shooting out way in front. So bloated, so bloated. And on the one hand, I think we were all like, yay, more Marvel content. And on the other hand, it's way too much stuff now. And it becomes a challenge to even judge it on the quality level just because there's just so much of it. There's so much. I certainly get like this at film festivals and I'm sure you do too. When you watch so much stuff in a span of time, it makes me a harsher critic personally. I start to see the flaws more than I do. Here's what's fun for me. And just thinking about this being basically the end of this phase, I'm like, oh man, you mean we don't get a team up? That sucks. And even with the Guardians, okay, we still don't get a team up though. I want to see Shang-Chi and Shuri and Nakia and whoever actually do something together. And we just don't get that. And it's like, oh, man, bummer. Logically, the end of Phase 4, which should have been Young Avengers, really, if you think about it, because of how many Mm -hmm. protégés they were introducing to other characters. I totally thought that's where things were going. We have Ms. Marvel and, as you say, all the protégés and younger characters who could absolutely step in and do something similar but different with the Avengers. And it's just a missed opportunity. But also, and I think we had this conversation, I think, recently in something, but just about the tonal differences of all these things. It would have been a tall order to try and get all of that combined somehow. And I think that's kind of what they realized. They were like, oh, I don't know how to get all of this to work. Uh, uh, the phase is over. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, there was all the COVID concerns that were kicking about when the phase was being made. So logistically, they maybe didn't want to risk planning a team up when they might not be able to 
across the streams in terms of scheduling. Absolutely, yeah. Which is completely valid. Mm. I've always said I think the theme of phase four is recalibration in terms of we've just had this big thing, now what do we do? And all the projects in some way or another have been the characters, certainly the more legacy characters, have been trying to figure out what they do next, what's next for them and where they go from here. Yeah. Which I think is a good, strong theme. And dealing with grief has come up in a few of them as well. I don't mm-hmm. think it's strong enough to be the theme of the phase, but it's come up in a number of them. So it's something that's there in the background, and particularly in this one. And I think in this one, it's almost the acknowledgement on a meta level of, yeah, we have gone through this horrible period of time and it's okay to sit and take stock of that for a little while before we launch into something else. And maybe that doesn't make for the most interesting viewing, but I think it makes for a very interesting theme. Yeah, for sure. There's something to be said about recognizing the collective trauma of having had to save the world. The universe reversed some really heavy damage. And then you have all these new characters who span different time frames and different everything else in a way that is more disjointed than the previous phases have been if we're talking about early MCU. Even that was a little more cohesive than this phase has been. And like I've said before, I'm always here for experimentation and, hey, let's try something new. We've been doing kind of a similar thing for like 20 movies, more than 20 (laughs) movies. Every time I bring this up, it's astounding. So of course, it's like, all right, we got to make sure to keep things fresh. Otherwise, people will be like, eh, it's another Marvel movie. Who cares? You got to put in some innovation or you run the risk of losing your audience entirely. But at the same time, has there been a little bit too much jiggling things around this phase? (laughs) I take your point about the COVID safety thing really throwing a spanner in the works. And it probably did have a lot to do with what they could and couldn't do. And I suppose if we think about it that way, I mind it a little less. Because I think they've done exceptionally well with what they could do. I mean, this movie had a lot of production issues to start with. Yeah. There were injuries, I think, and then Letitia Wright was a anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-COVID slash COVID denier. She was one of those people who just did not want to adhere to the vaccination policy. And so she was literally holding the production hostage for a really long time. And I don't know if she actually got vaccinated in the end or if they ended up relaxing the requirement for her, but there were months where they were just frozen because the requirements were such and she was just not budging. And it's a shame because it's quite common actually within the artistic community. It's happened a lot and it just kind of sucks that this had to happen. Especially for someone so young as well to be sucked in by all that rhetoric. It's really unfortunate. It just goes to show that it's not an age thing. I know it's commonly seen as older people are more vaccine averse or new technology averse, but not really. And especially with this kind of misinformation that got people across the age spectrum, across the gender spectrum, it just didn't matter. Unfortunately, it was all too common within the people of color community. British black people in particular were very resistant to getting vaccinated for quite some time during the pandemic. There were a bunch of public health campaigns that were trying to get people to, hey, actually, this isn't bad for you. Here's more information so you're not scared. Please go get vaccinated. Please protect your loved ones and yourselves. There was a video that my partner actually got to work on that was Lenny Henry and a bunch of respected Black artists and public figures who did 
this PSA and I think it worked and I think that people are less afraid now. That's the thing. There was just a lot of really emotional language around vaccines and around the safety or not safety or whatever. And I think that's what got people and that's what got Letitia right. It's just when you're caught up in this emotional narrative of safety or not safety or what this could do to you, it was a very harmful time on social media for sure. <laughs> Aren't we glad it's all in flames right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, the less said about that, the better. But yeah, shall we move into the spoiler section, sound our battle cry, and then we could do whatever we want. Yes, please. Let's do it. Okay, let us start with how the film starts. The loss of T'Challa slash Chadwick Boseman and how they address that. I think it's fair to say that the plot doesn't really start until they deal with all that. The first chunk of the film is pretty much singularly devoted to addressing that loss and then taking a breath before they move on to something else. And I thought it was done well. I love the Wakandan funeral. And it's interesting because we had a royal funeral in real life mm-hmm. not long before this film came out as well. So it's a weird parallel that Marvel accidentally drew with the real world. Yeah, that's right. I thought the funeral was really well done. I thought it was an interesting display of culture and in terms of what the traditions are to Wakandan funerals and how they mourn the passing of someone so important. And Ryan Coogler did a great job of still keeping it focused on the family as well. There was lots mm-hmm. of tight close-ups on Shuri and the Queen and so forth to remind the audience of the personal loss as opposed to the public yeah. and widespread loss. I thought it was very well done. I saw some corners of people talking about, oh, I don't like how they just killed him off screen. I wish they'd use CGI or whatever to make him die in battle, got the Black Panther suit and he's fighting someone and dies. And I would have hated that. I think that would have been too contrived. Yeah, I would not have liked that either. In fact, I found it very interesting that we don't spend any time at all wondering what happened. It's very clearly he got sick. It was really fast and we didn't know how to handle it. And then that's it. Instead of retracting the death, which I think would have cheapened, because it's not just killing a character off. A real person, real life artist that people involved in this film knew and loved died yeah it's not like he left because of a pay dispute or something like that yeah it's not like we're just kind of like oh let's see how this character could die spectacularly it's we've lost him i found it incredibly moving that actually we open with this and it is the elephant in the room going into it you're like i don't know what they're gonna do and they just answer the question immediately of how does wakanda move on from losing their king and how does his family move on i've got some more things to say about loss and stuff for later but i'm just going to leave it there for now i find it interesting the way that ramonda reacted because it was this idea of she passed on the throne she didn't have to do this anymore and now she's back in this role and she's just so tired of it all i think that's a very valid and very realistic reaction to loss it's this just so tired of all the stuff I have to do now in the wake of this, when you're close to it and you have to pick up the pieces after the person is gone, where you're responsible for dealing with that. And it was yeah. very much hard, just, well, no parent should ever have to outlive their child for a kickoff. Mm-hmm. And then to have to take on this massive global role as well, where mm-hmm. all eyes are on her, whenever she leaves Wakanda, really. Probably in Wakanda as well, because she's in the leadership role there too. So people are looking to her for guidance and things. It was a really interesting, oh, I'm so tired of this, and how she conducts herself with dignity. But then you get the different shades of her as well. You get her as the concerned parent, the grieving parent, 
and the badass leader as well and just her trying to hold together all these different pillars that she has to be because as a parent she can't just break down because she has to be a source of strength for her children or she doesn't have to be but she'll feel like she has to be and mm-hmm. she has to be a source of strength for the nation and she also has to present Wakanda as not being weak to the outside world as well which of course they never will be because they've got vibranium and nobody on earth except from Namor is a match for them mm-hmm. so she was really well done, I think. And Angela Bassett was very powerful in her performance. The two key scenes for me are when she's addressing the UN and when she's addressing just the Wakandan Council. How much pain was there? I thought that was brilliantly done. Yeah, bringing her personal pain into the politics because it is all intertwined was great. We got a lot of Angela Bassett in this movie, way more than in the first one. And she really carries a lot by herself. Obviously, it is an ensemble piece, as all of these are, but just having someone of that gravitas actually give us that raw emotional power was great. It's interesting, actually, how this is effectively Shuri's film. She's essentially the lead. But it's interesting how the people take the plot away from her for periods of time. Yeah. So you start off with Ramonda. She's doing most of the stuff until Shuri gets some stuff to do for a bit. And then she disappears and then Nakia gets to do some stuff as well. The sort of baton passing of the plot. Like now I'll push things forward a little bit, which is quite unusual for a Marvel film because usually the protagonist, whoever they are, is driving things along. She is a little bit reactionary, I do agree. There's a lot that comes at her that she needs to figure out how she feels about it and figure out what to do. And a lot of it is a very legitimate, I am very young, And I've been thrust into this position of responsibility, and I don't know what to do with that. I never expected to have to shoulder that kind of weight that was going to be my brother. I was always a support character, and now I have to be the protagonist? That's a lot. And I think it's very interesting how she kind of moves from that angry grief to having compassion for Namor's people and seeing things from other perspectives and all of that to then deciding what to do with that. Actually, we say that it's taken away from her, the scepter, if you will, of the protagonist, but no more, I think, than in a lot of Marvel movies. The protagonist is often three-quarters of the way in, and then you always other characters, their subplots. So I'm very happy with how Shuri's character evolves through this movie. I think there is an evolution and a settling down into who she'll be as a leader. And I quite like how she ends up. I think it complemented it nicely, as in it was other characters taking it on because she wasn't ready to, which is an interesting approach because it allows the idea and the plot mechanics to work hand in hand. Plus it gives you extra time with different characters that you wouldn't normally get otherwise. I'm trying to imagine the version of this film that had Chadwick Boseman in it, and I imagine you wouldn't get nearly as much of Ramonda in that version. Yes. Or even Shuri, maybe. I think Shuri would have went to recruit Riri Williams and that would have been about it. Probably, and then maybe some tech stuff down the line. Yeah. So, in fact, it's actually done really well in that regard. Yeah, and there was a question that someone asked me. Well, they didn't ask me. They were just asking the group on a Discord I'm in about why were there no Avengers at T'Challa's funeral? And I think that's a valid question because he was certainly close to some of them. I don't know that there were any outsiders there. I think they kept it for just Wakanda. Maybe there could have been a public outreach type thing that we could have seen. We could have seen some of the Avengers say something. I agree that we could have had a little more interconnectedness. Seems like Bucky could have been there. He stands out as being the closest to 
Wakanda while being an outsider. Yeah. And the thing is, they wouldn't have really needed the actor. There was an episode of Smallville where a character died and they did a hero's funeral for them. And what they did was they had stunt people shot from above wearing the costumes of the other heroes. So they didn't have to hire the actors for that appearance. They just had the stunt people wearing costumes. So there's ways around. I didn't even think about it at the time when I was watching it. It was just something that was brought up later. But I suppose it's one of those, it's a shared universe. So those questions are always in the background. Why isn't X there? Why isn't Y? Where are all these people? I think I had that thought while I was watching the movie, but I didn't think anything was wrong with that. I just thought that it was an interesting, like, oh, okay, it's just for the people of Wakanda. You couldn't really expect an outsider to get it, inviting even someone like Bucky. He's still an outsider, though. He's not part of this culture, and it's important for the people of Wakanda to grieve their king in the way that Wakanda has traditionally. They've only been open for a little while, but perhaps it would be a bit of a stretch to expect them to open up everything to the outside world, including a state funeral like that. I think it would have been more targeted at the Avengers that T'Challa would have known. Yeah, just a personal. I suppose there's not that many of them, to be fair. You might have had Old Man Steve. Maybe. (laughs) Or... No, none of his team, I guess. I guess we don't really know. Bucky would be the obvious one because of his connection to Dora Milaje anyway. Mm. He's not accepted by them, but he was helped by them. And he definitely knew T'Challa because T'Challa went to get him in Infinity War. Yes. Where he could have sent someone else to do it. We've addressed the question, so there we go. We've <laughs> delivered an opinion on whether we think the Avengers should have been there. Yeah, maybe, but it's not a huge deal. It's interesting how the two Black Panther movies feel very insular in that way. They're their own pocket, aren't they? They don't really link outside of themselves too heavily. Yeah. This one sets up something that's going to happen later, but it doesn't connect much to anything that came before. And the first one was the same. There is an assumed familiarity with what has come before. you got to know who Killmonger was and his role in everything. You can't just see this outside of its context. You need at least the first movie. It's interesting that it doesn't really connect to any of the team-up films that T'Challa was part of and that Churi was part of. It is interesting, but also kind of in line with a lot of these one-character or one-sided Marvel movies where you don't really see the others very much at all. Thor is like that. I was going to say some of the new films are also like that. You don't really get anybody showing up in, I don't know, The Eternals. I suppose the Doctor Strange movie was an exception to that because we get Wanda. But the others don't really seem to bother. And Spider-Man had Doctor Strange and obviously other Spider-Men. Because he always needs a babysitter, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time where he doesn't, potentially. Eternals is an interesting one because it may not have connected in terms of appearances, but it made a lot of references to previous events. Why weren't you involved in Thanos and so forth? This one, other than the first film, it doesn't draw on much. Thanos is mentioned once, but that was more in context to Nakia's disappearance from Wakanda. She left after Thanos attacked or before Thanos attacked or sometime around then. But you get no sense of who got blipped and who didn't. Some of which we know, of course. We know that Shuri was blipped and so forth, but we don't know if Riri Williams was or anybody else. Nakia, was she blipped? Don't know. Presumably not. Yeah, good question. Probably not because of the post-credit spoiler. Yeah, although the thing about the blip is it has become increasingly unimportant since Endgame. It just seems to just not be a thing anymore. Yeah. Which is a shame. We talked about it in She-Hulk. It's the Sokovia cards. They're not a thing anymore. They've actually just Mm. written them out in a single line of dialogue. So what was the point, really? They had a lot of potential in terms of causing issues and nothing's come of it. These earth-shattering 
events and just nothing comes of any of it, which is a shame. They exist to fuel the one plot that they're associated with and then they're just dropped after that point, which may be the case here. I don't know. There is a suggestion of Wakanda on the brink of war with the outside world and that's part of why Namor doesn't consider his defeat an actual defeat because he thinks he'll be the only ally to Wakanda when that war inevitably comes. Which I think is interesting. I feel like that's somewhere the MCU should go at some point. Yeah, it's definitely untapped potential. How it wouldn't be anything but a curb stomp from the Wakanda to look inside is a question, though. Mm. A big part of this is trying to look for vibranium in other places, and they find it at the bottom of this ocean. Soon they'll be able to use adamantium, though, so that'll be similar. Maybe the United States will find or create adamantium, and then that'll be their versatile substance that they can use for everything. Yeah. So that'll put them on an even keel. Or maybe they'll conscript superheroes to help them fight Wakanda or something. I don't know. But I feel like that's something that they might be building through or they might at least be putting on the table as something that might come in the future. Some kind of mm-hmm. world war with Wakanda and Tolokan fighting everyone else. Another huge event that'll have no consequences, probably. <laughs> exactly. Shuri then was touched on her processing loss and redefining her place and things. What did you think of her random desire for vengeance that appears midway through. I get that Namor had killed her mother and that prompted that, but I don't think I really bought into her being so bloodthirsty in the wake of that. Maybe it's just we don't know the character well enough based on previous appearances. Yeah, I don't know that we know her well enough. I don't know that we get a sense that she has that streak, but I would say it's foreshadowed earlier in the film. The way that she deals with her grief is through anger, and losing T'Challa becomes a source of great anger for her. That's where it starts for her, is the, I can't accept that I couldn't fix my brother's illness, I couldn't save him, and now he's gone, and I'm angry. I'm angry at myself, and I'm angry at the world. Namor killing her mother gives her a focus for that anger. She's had way too much loss in a short amount of time and here's this guy and he did this. And so I'm going to just take all of that anger and frustration on you. It's an interesting take on the character that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but also it gives us her perspective on the whole Killmonger thing. The reason that Killmonger was such an effective villain was that he had a point. I think a lot of us When we saw the movie, the first film, we were like, oh shoot, he has a point. I see exactly where he's coming from, and I can't be mad at his logic. I can be mad at him being violent and killing a bunch of people and that sort of thing, sure. But the reasoning that he arrives at, being abandoned by Wakanda and all of the suffering that his people had to go through who weren't protected by Wakanda, it's a valid kind of anger. And it's interesting to see, first of all, how Wakanda deals with all of that, because we see them having those outreach centers and how they are very much targets from other countries because they have vibranium and they have all of this tech that most countries in the world don't and they're jealous and they want it. Looking at you, France, (laughs) both on that level and kind of macro a country, but then also what does Shuri think of all of that? Did she connect to Killmonger's logic of actually I'm angry that nothing was done when you guys could and then she sees that part of herself I could have done something and I'm mad that I wasn't quite there and I couldn't do it or I'm mad at someone for 
killing my family. So I have this strong urge for revenge. I understand it as character motivation. And I agree with you that we probably didn't know this character well enough before for that to be an easy logical leap. It was definitely a new introduction, but also a lot of these situations she didn't have to deal with before. She was carefree, she was 16, and making memes about shoes in her lab. That was the extent of her involvement. She would make some fun tech for people to wear, or I think she shows up at the end of Endgame. It's a chance to explore a more introspective and real side of grief, which is that anger. And if you can channel it to something that's perhaps productive and that helps you deal with those emotions or if you let that grief and that anger destroy you which is what happened to Killmonger all of that anger consumed him and his whole life amounted to that and so the question is would Shuri let that overcome her as well and I think she deals with it in a good way eventually (laughs) (laughs) but it's a challenge and she's young it also links her to Neymar in a very visceral way because he's motivated by grief and he's had centuries of not letting go of that grief mm-hmm. he's just let it consume yes. him all this time and he's been happy living in his undersea kingdom where he hasn't really had to deal with it he hasn't had to deal with any external challenges that might prompt him to act in violent ways like he does he talks to shuri and he is able to tap into her feelings at that point he almost exploits her loss. He does, yeah. By bringing it up and he says, you just want to burn the world like I do or something like that. I forget the exact quote, but he seems to think that she's a lot like him. Mm-hmm. And he's almost a cautionary tale of what she might turn into if she doesn't accept help from everybody that's trying to help her. Because yeah. Neymar has his subjects. Everybody listens to him. He's a leader and he doesn't really have anybody challenging him. He has mm-hmm. his two henchmen, Achuma and... Namora, who are, well, they're just that, they're just henchmen. Mm-hmm. Namora, she sort of challenges him at the end where she says, why did you surrender? And he explains, well, we're just biding our time, our time will come, etc. But there isn't really a strong support system for Namor that the film gives us. So it yeah. seems to suggest he's just been sitting there stewing in his own grief for hundreds of years. And now he has the opportunity to act on it. And the way he acts on it is not good. And he almost drags Shuri down with him. Yeah. And the Killmonger cameo was a nice surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was an appropriate connection for Shuri to have. I don't think they shared any screen time, really, in the first film. They may have been in scenes together, but they didn't really interact. I don't think they shared the screen, no. So like you say, we didn't have any sense of what she thinks of all this, whether she agrees with him or not. And it turns out on some level she kind of agrees with him, but more in his methodology rather than the way he thinks, as in, are you going to be noble or are you going to get things done like me? And her decision after that is, I'm just going to get things done like he would. It's a very proactive response after that where she takes the fight to Neymar, which is very much what Killmonger would have done. Yes. It's what M'Baku was driving for as well. So he's almost that other devil on her shoulder, sort of coaxing her in a given direction. I don't know that taking the fight to him is necessarily the evil thing to do or not the best thing. It's more about the general approach to it. Getting things done is good, but the way in which you do it matters. I definitely was surprised by the Killmonger cameo, but also it was a pleasant surprise. They could have CG'd Chadwick Boseman in there. They could have brought the father back or perhaps somebody else. But actually seeing Killmonger is like, oh, a reminder. That as a Wakandan, he also gets to go to this plane of existence. As a member of her family, he also counts as an ancestor. And so that was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Huh, 
what does it say about Shuri that that's who she saw? And what does it say about her approach to things? It's very telling and it's interesting to have someone who is like this instead of peace loving we'll just sort it all out later just don't worry about it she's not that kind of person and i appreciate that yeah she doesn't get to see her mother until after she's ready to let go of that which she does during the fight she has that vision of her mother that appears mm-hmm. at that moment it was good to see michael b jordan again i suspect mm-hmm. he did it as a favor to his friend ryan coogler oh i'm sure because they're good friends they work together on Creed and I think they've collaborated on various other things in a less formal capacity. Yeah. So, yeah, he's here. It was a good surprise. The visual was in the trailer. It showed the chair and it was on fire or surrounded by water. But you didn't see him. So nicely hidden. These things often leak, don't they? That is true. <laughs> he did his voice in What If. He's not out. He's not gone from the MCU wholesale. So, yeah, that was all interesting. And her decision to not kill Neymar was... Perhaps predictable, but you could see why she decided on that. It was more of a recognition of the fact that I have to be an example to my people as well. And killing Namor wouldn't bring peace anyway, because his people were committed enough to just carry on, probably fight to the last man or woman. Yeah. So it was an interesting political decision as well as an emotional one, which I think these films do really well in combining the two, rather than keeping politics as this high-level business type thing that you don't have an emotional connection to. I love that the concept of leadership and how you lead your people and how you interact with other nation states and things is connected to the personal journeys of these characters. Yeah. And as I said earlier, Namor was great. He was really well characterized he could have been easily ridiculous in a way he looks a bit ridiculous in the film with his little (laughs) ankle wings i'm glad that they got them in but i feel like if the film had been made 10 15 years ago he would have just been able to fly and that would have been it they wouldn't have done the the ankle wings no they kept it very comic book accurate as far as his appearance is concerned now i haven't read these comics my partner has so i'm told that the original character is Atlantean, so basically Greek. And I'm glad that they didn't go that route. Even as a Greek person, I'd rather not have Greek representation and get something that's a little more interesting and a little more in line with the Black Panther world building of a country that has managed to stay outside of colonialism and colonial violence. But in the case of Namor, it's more of a retreat and a hiding away from an inescapable, inevitable violence as opposed to just being shielded from it the entire time. Making the Mayan was super cool and very interesting and a chance to just jazz the world building up a little bit because Atlantis is kind of overdone at this point, you know? (laughs) It's an easy cop-out because everybody's like, oh yeah, what's a hidden culture that exists underwater? It's such an obvious choice and it's been done to death in so many things and i'm actually quite glad that they did away with it they moved the whole thing to mexico and in so doing just made it all so much more interesting and of course because thematically it vibes with black panther makes namor the perfect fit for a character and a culture to appear what movie could you have had these guys show up in if not this it's perfect it's great And some really interesting things like how they move underwater and how they breathe and the masks they were wearing above water and how their skin color changed underwater. They weren't blue, but then when they were outside, they were that sort of thing. The manifestations of all of that magic was just very interesting to me. I really like that. Plus, you're also dealing with the Aquaman of it all 
we've already had an Aquaman film and he's Atlantean and he's at least on paper at a high level very similar to Namor. He's half human, yeah. half Atlantean. They both are in the comics. Mm-hmm. One was a copy of the other, right? Yeah. That's how Marvel and DC kind of work. Yeah, it's basically it. But they could have just changed a couple of names and then that would have been it. But I like that they just went from the ground up. It was, no, let's form a different culture. Let's bring it from a different place. It's still an underwater kingdom, but it's not Atlantis. And it's also based on these Mayan roots. And then we've got this whole backstory scenario of how these people came into being. And then fast forward a couple of hundred years and you've got this underwater city, which I've got to say, wasn't that visually impressive, really? It was all very murky and difficult to figure out. But I imagine they'll flesh it out in later iterations because this won't be the last we see of Neymar, definitely. Oh, for sure. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him again. I know that there's only so much you can do in a movie that already kind of has a magical hidden locale where most of the action takes place. So like you don't want to overshadow the protagonist's culture and place of origin. So I'm hopeful that we'll get a little more detail and more impressive visuals down the line. But I kind of liked what we saw from this, even if it was just a glimpse. I really, really enjoyed that. It's a bit like when you see Wakanda in Civil War. It's just one sterile looking lab. Yeah. <laughs> a white room and there's a panther statue outside and then that's it. It's not quite as limited as that, but it's along those lines. It certainly isn't as vibrant and widespread as Wakanda is because with Wakanda you see the people in the villages doing their day-to-day stuff. Mm. And I think that was great before the attack happened, just seeing people just doing their whatever it is they do all day sort of routines. That really gives you scope of the location. And I think it's something we were always missing with Asgard, really. Mm-hmm. Asgard in the films just seemed to be a big palace. I mean, it largely was. It was just this flat disc, right? So, yes. You know my thoughts on this. <laughs> I resent the fact that we didn't get more of Asgard and just a little bit of summon. <laughs> Upset about it. I am. You see all the common people in Ragnarok and you're just thinking, I didn't know you existed, but okay. Ah, uh, gosh, the whole Asgard is a people thing. Don't even get me started. It's a different kind of podcast. <laughs> We've already had that conversation. No, no, no. But yeah, seeing the shot when Shuri is down there in her little suit (laughs) and she gets to see the big city, the underground city, and also the little farms and things like that. Wow. Okay. This is different. And it's different from even just other depictions of Atlantis and underwater civilizations and stuff. It's just like, oh, okay, this is actually cool. This seems to be the era of cinematic underwater effects. Because we've got this, we've got Avatar coming out soon, and The Little Mermaid early next year. So it seems like filmmakers are really into just trying to do underwater stuff at the moment. Don't know why that is. It's just a weird, Mm. common theme. Funnily enough, they're all Disney as well. I mean, everything's Disney now. (laughs) I don't know if you heard, but they bought everything. They just own all the things now. Until they sell it all to Apple, and then it's Apple everything. (laughs) There'll just be a big building you go to that just does everything. It's just one company you give your money to for everything. Yes. How terrifying is that? Yeah, a little bit. But it was important to establish what Namor was fighting for and what he was afraid about as well. The whole idea of we've been hidden all this time and now we risk not being hidden. But he just seems to think that killing one person will keep them hidden forever. Or is it just going to be he'll keep killing one person to keep themselves hidden in future? It just seems like he's not thinking of the big picture, even though he's a leader. Because that was what the first Black Panther film was largely about. T'Challa realising that there was a big picture to think about. Wakanda couldn't stay hidden forever. They were accidentally discovered before. It will happen again. We have to meet this head on, which 
is a lesson that Neymar doesn't quite learn in this. I don't think he's worried about that after this. Yeah. But it's because Shuri promises to keep their secrets. Oh no, it's Ramonda that promises, and I think Shuri will just honour that later on. Someone promises anyway. There is a promise made to keep them hidden. Even though the CIA, I think it is, that Martin Freeman works for, they're on to them. They know they exist, or they know that there's someone else out there. So they're not going to stop looking, are they? Mm. I don't know where any of this is going. That's the problem. They keep chucking little suggestions in of where it will go and then they don't go anywhere. So probably yeah. oh, know it won't go anywhere. The next time we'll see Neymar might be in the Fantastic Four or a Fantastic Four movie because that was where he was either introduced or reintroduced. I'm not sure which it is, but that's where he became widely known to the Marvel Universe in Fantastic Four comics. And he was obsessed with Sue Storm, which I don't think will play well now because of how old he definitely is. Whereas they were kind of cagey on that in the comics initially. Mm. But that would probably be where we see him next, I would guess. Riri Williams then, we touched on her. What did you think of her introduction to the film? Do you think it was organic? Do you think she needed to be there? Or do you feel like it was just, here's a trailer for a Disney Plus show that's coming on in a few months? It was definitely, here's how to ease a character in and make her interesting to the audience. Was it a chance to spin off into her own show? Absolutely. Yes, it was. But also, that's kind of how you would do that character now. Yes, she's getting her own show and stuff, but is it not better to know who she is? I was going to watch that show anyway, because I'm aware of her from the comics, and so I would want to see how they do that story. But... It was cool to see her in this team of badass black women being super smart, kicking ass. It's great. I liked her very much. She did have some emotional scenes, but I feel like we didn't quite get to know her in any real way. And I suppose that's what her show will be about, so that's fine. I would have liked a little more personality other than I'm wicked smart and I enjoy talking in quips. Because that's what Iron Man does. And I can't say it was my favorite part of Iron Man either. Listeners of this podcast know I have my issues with Tony Stark. It's cool that she isn't just some Iron Man copy, but on the superficial level, she has a lot of those qualities. And I would like to see a little more depth and something different. Because if it's just teenage black girl Iron Man, I don't know. Iron Man is... I just don't. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do with the uh, Joss Whedon legacy of quippy superheroes? It was fun 10 years ago. And for me personally, it's a little old now. I need a little more meat on the bone to enjoy. You can't just have a character just be that. I'm not saying that she is. I am getting the vibe that we're going to get to that. But on a superficial level, I was just kind of like, she's all right. We didn't get enough of her to make a super detailed judgment one way or the other yet. I would say she's a bit tropey in this film. And you touched on it there, the snarky young genius trope. Yes. Which is... Pretty much every new character you meet in this universe at this point, isn't it? They're all quippy. They're all too smart for their own good. They're all leaving everybody in their dust in terms of the way they're doing things. And you get a sense of her setup in this, as in she has this hustle going at university where she does people's homework for them. And she has this garage she's allowed to work out of. And you get the hint of her relationship with her father through the car. But you don't get much more than that. And that's fine because this isn't her film. It's the Wakandans film. So she's playing into that. And she also exists as a snapshot of how Shuri was a couple of years ago or Mm. six years ago or however long the timeline is. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I can't figure it out anymore. 
but she's representative of Shuri as she was before she had all this weight put on her shoulders. And I really liked how they connected her there. The line about to be young, gifted and black. And then she turns to Shuri and says, oh, but you won't know anything about that considering where you're from. And then she says, no, I do have some idea because I was smart and people don't know how to handle that. So there's a connection there. I like that. And there was a really cool scene towards the end where everything's all wrapped up and Shuri says to Riri, I really like your Iron Man suit, but you can't keep it. You're not taking that home. We're only letting Sam Wilson keep his suit for some reason. We're not trusting you with this Wakandan tech, so off you go. But when she walks in, she's very T'Challa-like in that scene. It was almost a mirror of that similar scene in the first film where T'Challa walks into her lab and they do the handshake and things. And she's even dressed a bit like him. It just really stood out to me that that was almost her being the big sister to Riri Williams. I don't think the film makes too fine a point of it, but I think it's definitely there. And I love how fast friends they become and I love how they support each other. They speak the same language. You get the bit where they're sciencing it out. I really like that. I would watch a Shuri Riri Williams team up show. Definitely. I yeah. think it'd be great. You can almost see an earlier version of the film where T'Challa's in charge but sends Shuri on to recruit the girl genius because they speak the same language. And Akoye's there being impatient the whole time. You could see Shuri just being in that role with her in a different version of the film. Yeah, yeah. She was good. I'll watch her show, definitely. I always watch Marvel stuff, so I'll watch that. But I really hope we get more than the almost surface-level characteristics we get in this film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she was... A lot of fun. I think it's a case of Dominique Thorne elevating the material she was given as well by performing it so well. I agree with that. A lot of it is down to the casting, of course. That was one of the questions that was lingering over T'Challa, wasn't it? Will they recast or not? And I guess from the production point of view, from Ryan Coogler's point of view, the answer was always, no, I'm not doing that. But I wonder, would it have been accepted had they done it? I suppose it depends who would have taken on the role. Mm. From my point of view, I think all these actors own their characters, so I wouldn't respond well to a recast of anyone, really. It's difficult. I think the only time they've even tried it was with Rowdy. I don't know that they've recast anyone else who's significant. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm struggling to remember right now. Bruce Banner? Well, I guess. Fine. But also, The Incredible Hulk doesn't count. (laughs) It definitely counts. They've resurrected a lot of the side cast from that. Yeah, again, the lore counts. It's just that at the time, the MCU was a twinkle in Kevin Feige's eye. (laughs) It was not fully formed in any capacity. If they had a chance to redo the beginning now, I don't think they'd make necessarily the same movie. With Rhodey as well, it was early enough that it didn't have a massive impact. It wasn't that we'd seen him a bunch of times and now suddenly we're to expect to see this other guy taking on that role. And he certainly didn't have the iconic impact that Chadwick Boseman did. No. So if you were to recast him or any of these people now, you really couldn't do it. So I respect these decisions, and I think they've done well with that. We're about to get Harrison Ford taking on the role of Thunderbolt Ross. I don't know if anybody will care about that. The fact that it's the same guy, but not the same guy. Who is this? Sorry? Harrison Ford is taking over from William Hart as Thunderbolt Ross. Oh, Okay. Oh, well, we're going to get grumpy curmudgeon. I hadn't heard about this, by the way. Oh, wow. I live under a rock, I guess. I'm not on Twitter anymore. Nobody is. You should listen to the Neil Before Pod news podcasts. I should, shouldn't I? Oh, your Marvel news, possibly a month late or possibly replaced by different news by the time that the yes. episode goes out. But <laughs> it's there. It's a snapshot of at the time it was recorded rather than 
the month that actually takes place in. But yes, Harrison Ford is going to be taking on that role. I can't wait to hear him on the red carpet being interviewed about it and just not caring about anything he's Just asked. being like, eh, I don't want to be here. They're paying me. I guess I'm here now. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I have to do motion capture for Red Hulk, whatever that is. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be fun. But I don't know if anybody's as connected to William Hart. From my point of view, it's just, why can't he just be a different guy? Because we've already had mm. Thunderbolt Ross and he's played by William Hart, who's now, of course, dead. But Harrison Ford playing the same role? I don't know. I'll probably not care when it actually happens. I'll watch the film and I'll think, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. But yeah, I think certainly the main heroes have all made the roles their own so it'd be difficult to accept new actors in those roles however i do think it will eventually happen mm-hmm. even with this in the post credit scene we're introduced to t'challa's son who is also called t'challa so in probably 10 or so years we will have t'challa as black panther but it's that t'challa instead of the original and i don't know how i feel about that really because you had this film that was about this character has passed on and we have to pick up the pieces in the wake of that, and then in 10 or so years it'll be, we just have T'Challa. He's not the original one, but he's T'Challa and he's Black Panther, so the setup is as it should be. It seemed like calling him the same name certainly was a bit of a strange choice. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know how other people feel about it. I think it's canonical, though. I want to say from comic books, but it might be wrong. I'm not so up on modern Black Panther Mm. Wakanda lore, but it could be. But you know how it is in comics. What happens is a son takes over for a while or whatever, and then the original eventually comes back. Death is a revolving door in the comics, which not so much with actors and film contracts and things. No, of course. I do recall something at the end of the film. My partner said that the name Toussaint, that's the name of the person who freed Haiti or was instrumental in the independence revolution in Haiti. So that's just a very cool thing to do, especially thinking about the Wakandan heritage of making sure that they can outreach and liberate as many black people as possible from the diaspora and stuff. So I'm interested in where that goes, but don't know. There seem to be a lot of sons of people lately in post-credit things looking at you, Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) So you keep this going without recasting. Yes. (laughs) I think eventually they'll loop around and bring these people back through multiverse or whatever, but we'll see what goes on over the next few years. It was a good reason for Nakia not being in Wakanda. It was well explained. And then when I watched the film a second time, I noticed that Ramonda was about to tell Shuri about it before Neymar showed up. She was about to say your brother had a secret or whatever. It was hinted at from early on, but it was such a subtle hint that I missed it the first time. You kind of need to know the answer and see the hint, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought Lupita Nyong'o was great in this. I loved seeing her process of being a spy because you don't get to see that in the first film. She gets rescued. Yeah, actually seeing her infiltrate a country (laughs) and just being like, oh, but give me your secrets though. It's great. I mean, the person she talks to perhaps gives it up pretty quickly, but still. She rolled a natural 20 with a plus 10 modifier of charisma. That's how (laughs) these things go. Of course it is. And I liked M'Baku's line after... She'd succeeded. The spy saves Wakanda again. The queen will reward her with banishment, I suppose. Or whatever it was he said. <laughs> there wasn't enough M'Baku in this film. I thought he was sitting in the background too much. Yeah, absolutely underutilised. But everything he said was gold. I loved him just commenting on everything. I love that character. We'll get to see more of him in the third film, I suppose. Because mm, yeah. he's going to be in charge, isn't he? It seems. Maybe he'll get a vibranium man-ape suit. Yeah, but he's actually the king now. Because in the comics, he's very much a villain, or at least he is initially. 
the man-ape who takes over Wakanda and I think T'Challa brings in the Avengers to take him down, which they won't do here. He's too much of an ally, but I think he'll have a bit of a stronger approach to foreign policy, maybe, because he's always keen for a fight, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He'll need to learn to restrain himself. (laughs) (laughs) Or the council will have to restrain him in some way. Yeah. That was an interesting choice, though, that Shuri was leader for a little while and then she just easily leaves it behind Mm. and lets M'Baku do it. But takes over the Black Panther role. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to have the Black Panther be someone who isn't at the same time the king or queen of the country. So that's new for them. Yeah, and that's what they've done in the comics. When T'Challa was an Avenger, there was someone else that was in charge. <laughs> How many jobs can you do at the same time? <laughs> People were treating Revealing Shuri as the Black Panther as being a surprise or a spoiler. I never assumed it would be anything else. We all knew that's where things were heading, right? What else were they going to do? I don't know. It was certainly in the second trailer where they showed the front of the suit, but they didn't show who was inside the suit. And you're just thinking, yeah, that's mm. definitely Shuri. That's not big enough to be M'Baku, for example. M'Baku would have a bulkier suit. Yeah, yeah. One thing that makes me wonder, though, about the Black Panther suit, I get the whole traditional aspect of the mantle being passed and the Black Panther being the protector of Wakanda. But when you're about to go to war with a vibranium-equipped army, surely it makes sense to just give your entire army those suits, these indestructible Black Panther suits. I thought the idea was that they didn't have that many ready. At some point, I think Okoye is like, how many of these have you made? That was the whatever angel suit. Oh, right. Yes. There was two of them. There was one for Okoye and one for Aneka. And that was it. But it seems like they can 3D print these things in no time. So I don't know. Yeah. I guess equipping everybody with a Black Panther suit would have really fed into the whole idea of Shuri not being bound by tradition in the way that some of her forebearers were, because they hinted that where she balks at tradition. It's not for her, and she doesn't buy into the whole spiritual aspect of leadership in Wakanda and things like that. Mm -hmm. Obviously has that spiritual experience where she talks to both Killmonger and her mother, but prior to that point, she just thought the ancestral plane was nonsense, I guess. And she refers to Bast and says, I'll stop denouncing your existence if you help my brother out. Another character that could have been in Thor, Love and Thunder. I don't even want to... (laughs) (laughs) The interesting thing is, it it highlights how much of a missed opportunity the whole God Butcher thing was when you have the mention of not one but two gods in this film. There was the god that supposedly led whoever it was to the underwater heart-shaped tower for Namor and his people. And then Namor himself is referred to as a god, but I think that's just that people think he is one or consider him one rather than he actually is one. The serpent god. Yeah. And I like the naming of Namor as well, how it means no love or something like that. He has no love. Yeah, they go for the more Latin approach of Namor as opposed to Namor, which is the comic book name. I really like it. I think it gives the character name so much more meaning than the... It doesn't really mean anything in Greek. So actually by kind of making it about the colonizer saying the child with no love. It's so good. It's so poetic. It's so Mexican. (laughs) Making it this dramatic, poetic thing. It's just perfect. And it's lucky that the original name actually matches that. Yes. Which reminded me of Ms. Marvel because they did the same thing there. The Marvel part of her name comes from her actual name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of lucky breaks from comic writers (laughs) way back. Mm -hmm. Well, for Ms. Marvel, it wasn't that long ago, but for Namor, it certainly was. Well, lucky breaks. I think it's more about somebody put a lot of thought into it and they made it work. (laughs) Yeah, but it's lucky that the original lore supports it. Lends itself to it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that was good. That was interesting. Other characters didn't really have much to do. Akoye, I found interesting that she stepped down from her role as general 
only to essentially put on a superhero suit that she hated originally and then didn't hate later on. Yeah, she comes around to it, doesn't she? <laughs> but I've always liked that character. I think she's great, and I think she's really well used here, especially in the field trip with Shuri, where she's just, as I said earlier, impatient all the time. I gave you six minutes, and she brought a spear, and she's laughing at getting speakers thrown at her, whoever it is, heaters. Could have done without Everett Ross and Valentina, though. I don't think they needed to be there at all. Oh my gosh, yes. For a moment, I was like, who? <laughs> There we go, yeah. Point made. Every time they bring Martin Freeman's character around, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody wants this. In a lot of the recent Marvel stuff, the agency slash military side of the plot is just the most boring, yawn-inducing. In Ms. Marvel too, nobody cares about those fake S.H.I.E.L.D. people. In WandaVision, the S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff or the S.W.O.R.D. stuff, whatever they're called now, was the most boring part of WandaVision. It's just, oh, but we've always had this military arm kind of doing things on the sides and the background and the shadows. And especially with this Valentina, I forget her surname character played by Julie Louis-Dreyfus, they keep bringing her in and I suppose... Piece by piece, we keep getting some information about her and her involvement and things. And who is she? And we find out that she used to be married to Everett Ross. Does anybody care? Not really. But I guess we know this now. Yawnfest. What difference does it make? None. Oh, I guess I know this about her, but I'm the same amount interested as when she showed up in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Okay. So you're here now. I love her as an actor. I love seeing her in things, but it's just, what is this about? I'm really not interested. It's been several projects where she's shown up now and I'm still not interested. I find the character really irritating. Yeah. I quite like Martin Freeman's character though, but I think that's because I like Martin Freeman rather than he's actually a good character in his own right. Yeah, I like him. But if you remove him, I don't know that we lose that much. He's adorable. His American accent is not great, but <laughs> he tries. He gives it a good go. Take him out and you don't really get that much of a difference. That's how you know how important the character is. I also find it a bit weird that he's playing a tough guy. I don't associate Martin Freeman with being a tough guy. No, I don't think he does either. <laughs> At some point when Valentino comments on, oh, you've been working out, you're in shape. And he's like, oh, yeah, thanks. It's Martin Freeman. <laughs> it's Arthur from Hitchhiker's Guide. He barely knows where his towel is. That's about it. He's the guy from Love Actually. I always just think of him as this little dweeb. So seeing him be like, oh, yeah, I'm tough. Even as Watson and Sherlock, he wasn't a tough guy. And he was former military. I just don't associate <laughs> Martin Freeman with that kind of image. Tim from The Office, of course. Yeah, they're just trying so hard. You can try and go against type. I'm not saying typecast the man forever, but there's some things that are an easy, natural thing for some actors, and then there's, I'm going to be tough now, I think. I don't know that it works. He was the perfect Bilbo Baggins because he almost has to fade into oh, the background yeah. at parts of the plot, and that works for him. But yeah, in this, it's, I'm a tough CIA guy. No, you're not. <laughs> No, you're not. Bless your heart. <laughs> I just don't see it. The scenes, they mostly existed to address in small ways the international reaction to what Queen Ramonda said earlier in the film. The whole idea that the US are just thinking about attacking Wakanda because they're the US and that's what they do. When people upset them, they try and attack them. And his advice is, let's not do that. But that advice should be self-evident anyway, because they have vibranium and we don't. It wouldn't be a long fight. Yeah, I don't know. Have you seen America? I don't think that they care very much. And that's kind of the point. I'm glad that the 
conclusion that we reach is that it's not that we would stop doing that, is it? You can say we totally won't do that, pinky promise, but let's face it, we don't like being second fiddle to anybody. And so, of course they would. I think it's ballsy to recognize that. (laughs) (laughs) You have that line where he says, what do you think the US would be doing if we had access to vibranium? And Valentina says, I dream about that. I actually Mm. dream about that. It's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? It is, yeah. Imagine Donald Trump in the White House with vibranium equipped to the US Army. It'd be insane. We don't know who the president is in the MCU at the moment. Yeah, they don't really go there, do they? I think that's for the best. It was William Sadler before, but it won't be him now, I would imagine. Yeah. He was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well as Iron Man 3, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which Mm. is, of course, dubious in terms of its canon, but he was in it anyway, but he was in Iron Man 3. I think there is a plan to bring the president into maybe Secret Invasion, which makes sense. Okay, yeah. But I don't know who will be playing him or her. Probably him, my guess. We'll find out. The action scenes, let's talk a bit about them. We had three, really. You have the car chase, you have the attack in Wakanda, and you have the end battle. For my money, the car chase was the best one, and that was kind of a riff on the one they did in the first one. Yeah. But like the little bits to it, you had Riri Williams doing her thing, even calling back to the altitude problem from the first Iron Man film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For him, it was freezing, but for her, it was breathing. That was her issue. She almost passed out. And I loved when Akoi put the spear through the car seat and then just reversed. That was really cool. <laughs> and Shuri on the bike. That was the best action sequence. I did quite like the attack on Wakanda, but I feel like it also went very quickly. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, I don't know that I would have liked it to be too much longer. There was a lot of action in this, actually, I thought. Well, those were the three major sequences. You had Mm. little bits here and there. You could call Namor's flashback an action sequence. Yes. I don't think there was too much else, really. You had Nakia's part, but that was mostly sneaking about. She shoots two people, I think. You did have the whole going to get Riri Williams from MIT, and then the boat fight, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And then the fight in Wakanda, the invasion. Yeah. The thing about the invasion, that was the point where I really noticed how long the film was, actually, because I remember I checked my watch after it was over. Ah, yeah. And I'd noticed that we were an hour and a half in, so there was still another hour to go, and I was thinking, wow, we haven't seen Uh, anything yet, actually. (laughs) We haven't seen the new Black Panther, we haven't seen the Ironheart suit, we haven't seen any of that, so we still got essentially everything we were promised to go after this point. But it was... At that point where I was thinking, okay, it's probably going to be wrapping up pretty soon, but nope, still got another hour. (laughs) It didn't bother me as such. It was just something that I noticed. Mm. I try not to check my watch too often during a film, but sometimes when you're in the cinema, you're just like, I wonder how long this has been on. (laughs) And then you find out and, oh my God, still so much to go. Shouldn't have had that drink. (laughs) Like... Namor's weapons, the little water grenades he has, they're pretty cool. Oh yeah, the water bombs. Yeah, they were very original, I thought. Could have had something more just traditionally explosive, but the fact that they were water bombs was great. And also just kind of made you think about the interconnectedness of uh, just everything when water is involved. Because you can just, oh, I'm just going to raise the water levels a little bit. So that we can come in and wreak havoc. When they were invading Wakanda the first time, and you just see, just very quietly, there's a lot of water everywhere. And you're like, hmm, that's suspicious. So that was just a really interesting tactic. I really liked 
and I think it was kind of underutilized, seeing the various water-type powers that these people have. The siren song that makes people want to jump off into the water, that was very interesting and not explained and not used very much at all. It was used a couple times. It was very powerful, very creepy. And I would have liked just a little more about that. Where does that come from? Because it's not that this plant that gave them the ability to breathe underwater, does that give them powers also? Where does this magic source from? That was very interesting to me. Because they specifically reference Namor being a mutant. Yeah. But not the rest of them as such. Namor is a mutant in the comics. He joins the X-Men at one point but it's them using the word. And they managed to do it without using the 90s X-Men theme stab. <laughs> Props to them there for not doing that. They found ways to sneak in the word mutant here and there. It was used in Ms. Marvel at some point. Just here and there. Oh, we're just going to slip the reference and just kind of sow the seed of eventually we're going to get to that within the story. But for now, let's just imply that mutants exist and kind of naturalize them within this world because for the longest time anyone who came from x-men or any related story their powers were explained away by some other force usually it was the case of an infinity stone giving someone powers but now we're starting to see oh actually it's possible to just develop them through this other thing maybe I don't know. It's just interesting how things are shifting now. With Namor being a mutant, it's a bit of a weird one because it's not that he's a human with the gene that everybody who's a mutant has. He's a mutation within, I guess, the mutation that created his people in the first place. Yeah. So he's an offshoot of that. And in the comics, it actually works the other way. He's not accepted by all of his people. The character Atuma in this film, he's the one that overthrows him at one point. Mm -hmm. They're constantly battling between who's in charge between those two people. So... There's all that kind of stuff. I don't know, I didn't find it anything really that they mentioned it. They put a lot of emphasis on the word, so you perk up when you hear it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the siren calls, I didn't really think about where that ability came from. I just assumed that they had that, but they could have had it tech-based as well. You saw that they developed some kind of tech. Oh, maybe, but we don't see them use any tech no. around it. That's why I was just curious, because it's an interesting and cool power for water-based people to have. But where does it come from? I just have questions. Part of me thought initially, is that where the siren legend comes from? But I don't think those people are old enough for that to be the basis of the myth. No. It predates that by thousands of years, probably. Yeah, 2,000 years, give or take. Probably more, actually. Probably more like three. So that's why I'm like, okay, if it's a magic that, say, has to do with that plant that gave them the gills... Sure. Do they have other powers? What's that about? How does any of that work? That's just my question. And they're also strong and nigh unkillable, it seems. Basically. Because Akoye thinks she's killed them and then they just get up again. Do you think the third act battle transcends what She-Hulk warned against? The MCU copy-paste third act punch-up? I don't think it does. I don't think it does, no. It's still there. It's brief and it's kind of undercut by the one-to-one -one fight between Shuri and Namor, and I like that. It just feels unbalanced, and, well, of course it would go a certain way. There's, like, five of you and <laughs> hundreds of them. How do you think this is going to go? And you're on a uh, big boat, so you can just fall off it. In the middle of the sea. Yeah, that was a choice you made. It reminded me of the finale of Aquaman as well, the third act blew out there, but the Aquaman version was better. 
I haven't seen it, but I believe you. The Aquaman version is as chaotic as you imagine that film is. There's legions of different sea people fighting each other. Yeah, and it's all stormy and Aquaman fights his brother on top of a, a capsized submarine. Oh, I see. Okay. It's just much better. So I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is a bit like a weaker version of the Aquaman climax. Yeah. You've done so much work to divorce Namor from Aquaman, then you copy the third act action sequence and don't do it quite as well. Hmm. And I'm not sure how I feel about the Ironheart suit. I don't think I liked it that much. It was a little bit, was it called the Hulkbuster? Yes. Or Veronica. Yes. Oh, yeah. So it was a little Veronica-esque and too generic. But maybe because it was a prototype, I'm willing to forgive this in the view that it could and will improve in her show. Maybe a big part of it will be designing her suit the way that it fits her and that sort of thing. Maybe. I don't know. I liked her proto-suit. The one for the car chase. Yeah, the one that was just an exoskeleton. Yes, that was fun and it was different. You don't really see that in the MCU. It's usually very much an armor head to toe covered in robotics. So that was really cool. I agree. And it's interesting that she isn't motivated by Tony Stark in any way, or at least not at this point. It's just that making an Iron Man suit is something that some people can just do now. (laughs) Where did she get the arc reactor? There's a question. Is it supposed to be an arc reactor? I assume so, because the universe is set up that nothing else can power it for any length of time. Those things aren't just on the retail market, so it's very much a valid question. Where did she get that, if that's what that is? And if it's not what that is, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) What's she using to power it? Because it's a very small power source. Maybe they are on the market now. Uh, I mean, there was a bit about making clean energy available to all homes and stuff, so maybe there is... Stark Industries retail arm where they just sell many arc reactors to people. (laughs) There's another little connected bit of tissue that we should know about, but don't. Oh, of course. It'll probably be explained in our TV show. I would expect so. I'm really looking forward to finding out more about where she comes from as a person and what is her deal outside of just, oh, I'm really smart and I do people's homework at MIT. That's fine, but a little more personality than that. Yeah. Or Cambridge she was at, wasn't it? MIT, Harvard are both in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So hence that usually in media, if somebody says, oh, I'm in Cambridge, they mean Harvard or MIT as well, because it's kind of the more STEM side of things. And if they say that they're in New Haven, that means Yale. Okay. New Haven, Connecticut. So a lot of the time, and you'll see this in real life as well, when people want to brag, but they don't want to brag brag about having, say, gone to Yale, it's like, oh yeah, I went to school in Connecticut. (laughs) There's a handful of places in Connecticut and really what you mean is Yale. So just say that you went to Yale. It's fine. There's people who will say, oh yeah, I'm just going to Cambridge. (laughs) Okay, you could just say you went to Harvard. It's fine. We already think you're a posh twat. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe uh, Riri Williams will know MJ and Ned. They're around there. Yeah, that could be a really fun connection. I really liked Okoye throwing shade at the whole university thing. She's at the equivalent of a Wakandan primary school. Wasn't quite the like. <laughs> well, this is cute. Yeah. <laughs> In Wakanda, our children are at this level. We're way yeah, better yeah. than <laughs> these colonizers. <laughs> I love how much contempt she has for the outside world. Oh, for sure. Yes. Koye's queen. There was that great line in Infinity War where she wasn't expecting the Wakandan outreach to be quite what it was. She was like, I thought we'd maybe get a Starbucks or something. <laughs> what are we doing here? The weird thing is they introduced the Aneka character, Kajori Ayo, or Ayo, however mm-hmm. you pronounce her name. I don't know why they introduced this new character when you had this other one that was already there and already connected to 
McCoy in some way, especially when she was in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Was she in this? I didn't see her. I don't know that she was, no. This is why, Craig. <laughs> she walked away because she probably has other commitments. Actors get busy. So it was probably, hey, I could do this literal in Black Panther or... I got given this bigger role in this other thing. So it's just a matter of these things. What I found really interesting was that this character, first of all, has a lot of chemistry with Okoye to the point where I was like, hmm, is there something going on here? And then it turns out she is gay, but she's with someone else. Because at the end of the film, they're at her house and it's a party. And this other Dora Milaje soldier kisses the top of her head and she says, thank you, my love. And so I was like, aha, I see. <laughs> Hence the chemistry. There's another Marvel's first openly gay character. Yes, they're always the first ones, aren't they? Easy to cut for the Chinese market. Yeah, it's just a little scene. But I was like, hmm, I'm getting vibes from this. Because <laughs> I consider it a crime that they made Okoye straight and married to Daniel Kaluuya in the first film. I just saw zero chemistry in that whatsoever. Okoye would kick his ass. I think. <laughs> Maybe he likes that. That's what I was going to say. Maybe he's into it. That's fine. Fair enough. But I just didn't see that for her. And so when this new character showed up in this, I was like, ooh, maybe this? Yes. <laughs> Make her gay, you cowards, basically, is what I'm saying. Maybe Wakandans embrace a more polyamorous lifestyle. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we only know from T'Challa, who was in a relationship with Nakia, apparently. Well, they, they sort of reconnect in the first film, don't they? Well, they'd broken up, yeah. It's the same thing with all the Marvel stuff, isn't it? Let's not do the romantic angle too heavily. I'm okay with that because I was getting a bit sick of that formula in superhero films before the MCU came along anyway. Yeah. You have the superhero and then you have their love interest and they have to be conflicted about being together for a bit until yes. they decide to either be together or not. Mm -hmm. Repeat until insane, as the saying goes. I completely agree with you. And there's something to be said about romantic interest subplots. What need do they fill in that story arc? It needs to serve the greater narrative of development and coming into your own and accepting who you are and embracing your powers and all of that. It's an easy source of conflict where it's like, oh, this relationship I'm in clashes with this side of my identity or these powers I'm developing or whatever it is. So that formula. It gets tired pretty quick because the solution is kind of easy. <laughs> the solution is use your words. Communicate. <laughs> Tell your girlfriend you're Spider-Man. My God, if you're going to be together, this pussyfooting around and trying to be secretive about stuff, it's just manufactured. It's just convoluted for the sake of creating some conflict that's very artificial. So I agree with you. The MCU came in and they were like, no, we got plenty of conflict. We don't need to do that. It's fine. Not that we don't get some of that daredevil <laughs> but i mean that's in the root of his character though he just is angst about everything he does so that's a different story thor a little bit one could say doctor strange there's elements of where the romance hugs at different aspects of a character but it just has never been the core plot line of a movie there's always going to be a villain or something they need to fight against even if it's a bigger entity than just a bad person or whoever. First of all, it makes things more interesting. And second of all, we don't need to view the romantic partners as an obstacle to be overcome on the way to being a superhero. They can coexist within this new life. It's okay. You can do it. I believe in you. Yeah. And the tendency in the pre-MCU or sometimes post-MCU things in terms of the other studios making 
Marvel movies or even just superhero movies is you've got this love interest, but they're not really a character. They're a character's girlfriend, just like MG yeah. in the Tobey Maguire movies. She has no agency of her own really within the plot. She's a prize to be won, to quote Aladdin, yeah. and that's all it is. And it's the reward for the hero. They get the girl. It's the classic. And it makes sense for the MCU Spider-Man because they approached it from a more mature standpoint in terms of how they developed that relationship. But also, mm-hmm. he's an awkward teenager. He's at school. He's going through puberty. He's going to be confused about these sorts of things and not know what to do with those feelings and things. So, again, that made perfect sense. And with Doctor Strange, I like that Christine was like, nah, you're an arrogant douchebag. This would never work. And then that was the end of it, whereas he's pining after her, which both does and doesn't work. I like that the thesis is, this will never happen because we tried it and you haven't really changed that much. And I think that's a great valid way to do it. It's the idea of acknowledging that the relationship is just a no-go because of the way that their, their lives have taken them. And like you said, well, there is the hint of it here, but there's no hint of it in the lead characters. So Shuri doesn't have her love interest. Maybe Riri Williams could be at some point. Who knows? Mm-hmm. That might be an interesting pairing if they were to do that. When they do Fantastic Four, they'll probably lean into it quite heavily because of the family aspect of that group of people. Whether we'll see Reed and Sue established as already married or in a relationship or whatever, we don't know, but it will certainly be an aspect of it. So end battle doesn't really rewrite the book on MCU climaxes then. I think that's what we're saying here. Mm -hmm. I like that it doesn't end with Namor's death, though I'm always disappointed when they kill off the villain because I'm a comic reader and I want them to come back a million times. Yeah. But they come with this truce, which from the political point of view makes sense. Like I said, Namor's people would have fought to the last person, so having to be ordered to stand down makes sense. Yeah, as much as they do not want to do it. Yeah, pretty much. They're all just bloodthirsty for no reason. But again, they haven't characterised any of his people as such, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Apparently they can't make a Namor solo film because he's one of the Universal-owned people. They haven't got back yet. Ah, oh, boo. Thought we were done with this. Come on. <laughs> no. I think the Hulk contracts either lapsed or about to lapse, but I don't know about Namor. I don't know when they bought that and decided to do nothing with it. Mm. But I think he makes more sense as a supporting character anyway, but maybe that's just because that's how I've read him previous to this, where he's appeared in other people's books. So in theory, you could still have him on the X-Men team, I suppose, if you wanted to. Mm. Don't know why you would, but suppose you could. I think there's the whole thing of there's only so many characters that we're not already super familiar with to the point of it's just the same 10 people over and over again, so... I wouldn't mind seeing him in something. Freshen things up a little bit. Well, we will see him again, so that's pretty certain. But mm. it's a question of when. It's weird that he got an introducing credit in this film because it's far from his first performance. Introducing him in the MCU, perhaps. Yeah, but they've never done that with anybody else. Mm, yeah. He was in the latest Purge film, for example. I've not seen it, but apparently he was in that. I've not seen a single one of those. I've seen two of them, I think, and I didn't like either of them, so I haven't followed the franchise. I watched the first Purge, which is the third film, I think, and I watched the second one because it had, what's his name, Crossbones in it. Frank Grillo. That's the one. You can get Frank Grillo. Something my partner and I say, so there's this side note, this movie that I think you recommended or someone recommended called Jiu-Jitsu. The Nicolas Cage one. Yes, that Frank Grillo is in. Not to derail this podcast, but Jiu-Jitsu is such a weird, terrible movie. (laughs) And it was filmed in Cyprus by Cypriot filmmakers. And the whole thing was very Greek. I was very upset by it. And then Frank Grillo's there and he's kind of the biggest star in the movie. 
And my partner kept saying, well, I guess you can get Frank Grillo. And Nick Cage. He'll come to a movie for you. You can absolutely get Nick Cage. He's up for anything. <laughs> I'm glad that he's gettable. He'll do various projects and you can just get him to do stuff. I'm disappointed by his usage in the MCU, actually, because he appears twice and he's killed in his second appearance. So that's him. Absolutely underutilized. 100% agree. Seemed like he was going to be a good sort of henchman character. He crops up here and there. Yeah. Same with Claw in the first Black Panther movie, actually, and Age of Ultron. I was thinking, oh, this could be a good recurring menace. Nope. <laughs> to push things forward? Nope, just gun down. That's the end of him. We didn't get Doctor Doom in this film, which a lot of people thought would happen. Oh, yeah, that's right. I just thought I'd mention that thing that we didn't get. Mm. Glad we didn't. I don't know what purpose he would have served. He would have been a bit too much. It would have had to be in place of Namor, and yeah. that would have been a disservice, I think. He'll be the next hidden land, won't he? Latveria. Latveria, yeah. Was this in an MCU thing somewhere? That it's the country that kind of follows Sokovia or they rise out of Sokovia, something like that? They haven't mentioned Latveria yet, but the mm. Sokovian imagery was very Latveria-esque. Mm. As in you had the castle in the middle of the city and so on. Yeah. I think they were trying to do Latveria without doing Latveria. Right. At that time, because there was no hope of getting this character back at that point. Yes. But now they can, so it'll just be another nation state. And whether they'll go the gothic route like they did in the comics with the castle and all that gothic imagery that surrounds Doctor Doom, or whether they'll go proper techno-futurist type, I don't know, or a combination of both. Both can combine in some way. I don't know, but I guess it'll be Latveria versus Wakanda in the third film. It just seems like they're just going to fight hidden nations in every film. Apart from the first one, of course. But certainly this one and maybe the next one. I don't know. M'Baku squaring up against Doctor Doom is something I would quite like to see. Because I feel like Doctor Doom could get under his skin quite easily. I think he'd be prone to an emotional reaction to stuff instead of this measured intelligence-based reaction. Yeah. Whereas Doctor Doom will be several moves ahead like he always is. Except when he gets defeated. But when he gets defeated, it's always a Doom bot anyway. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. But with Kang and so forth coming up, it seems like Doctor Doom is another big name thrown in the mix. Yeah, and I can see that working. We'll find out. Mm-hmm. A piece of trivia that I find interesting is, did you know that Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for a role in this film? Oh my, at his age? Well, it was after Stallone appeared in Guardians of the Galaxy. You know how mm-hmm. him and Stallone have this, or used to have this rivalry about, I want to do how this film, no, I want done? to do this yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> and Stallone used to play with that as well by the fact that he got... Arnie to do really terrible films by making him think that he wanted to do it so that Arnie would go and do it instead and then they did the terrible ones. He didn't say what role he was considered for, but what he did say was, it's not a tumor. That was a lie. He's not considered at all. I thought of that joke as soon as a tumor was in the film. Thank you for that. I don't know if any other podcasting made it. I think I made it sound convincing though, didn't I? Did I have you for a minute? You did have me for a minute. It's one of those things where you could just about believe it's true, or it just seems like it'd be true. It's one of those things where it's like, I wouldn't be surprised, actually. Crazier things have been said. There we go, I got the joke. And an Arnie impression. Well done, excellent. Can add that to my sound bites for the next anniversary podcast. (laughs) So, anything else on Wakanda Forever before we wrap up? Did we miss anything? Gosh, now you're putting me on the spot. I think we got it. Wrap up final thoughts is, I thought it was a great sequel. It had a really difficult job, and I think it did it very well. It made me feel a lot of feelings. I got teary-eyed a couple times, and I thought that it was a natural progression for the Wakanda story. Where does the country go from here? And 
seeing it in the context of the rest of the world finally yeah it was great so i'm looking forward to seeing these characters again more of this story will be great do you think the ramonda death was one death too many because we already had the big wakandan funeral earlier in the film they didn't dwell too much on the second funeral no the thing is sometimes these things happen even in families not talking really about political leaders or things like that but just thinking about sometimes you lose two people in a row yeah sometimes you do have to do two funerals close together did we fridge angela bassett maybe she got fridged a little too early a female character being fridged to support the development of another, another female, female character, character? is yes. that a first shuri did not feel ready to take the lead so her mother stepped in and then it was well actually you don't even get that a line that i really liked was i just lost the last person who truly knew me it's a problem for people who are in the public eye like that where the people who actually know you as a person are limited to quite a small circle and what does a young person do with that when they lose their entire support system and the last person who truly knew them as they were as a kid and how they grew up and what they're like outside of being princess of wakanda and that's really difficult she just endured so much in this could we have done without it maybe but it would have required shuri to act through her own volition not just necessity and that push to deal with namor on the battlefield rather than in a diplomatic sort of way could only really be achieved if the diplomatic sort of way is out of the question so i don't know could we have done this without her dying maybe but maybe the actors wanted out maybe angela bassett was like this many is fine i don't think i want to do another one fair enough I feel like it was probably part of the film when it was centred around T'Challa as well. Sure, that was probably going yeah. to be that last moment of doubt before the big push towards the finale. And you could almost see the conversation playing out similarly with Killmonger and T'Challa. Yes. As it does in this film. You have to imagine the script was rewritten in the dropped things that were T'Challa-centric. But you can see where he would be placed in certain yeah. parts of the film, I think. And apparently Chadwick Boseman was given the script as it was at the time, not long before he died, and then that was it. Mm -hmm. I don't think he ever even got to comment on it before he died because he kept it so secret. Weaving that into the plot as well, the fact that he kept his illness a secret from everybody until it was too late was an interesting development, and then Shuri frantically scrambling to get it done. It was really powerful, and then when she has the time, she's able to figure it out, the whole heart shit type of thing. Mm -hmm. That's something I always wondered about in the first film when they burned them. Actually, I was thinking, has someone just got one somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> this can't be the only place that they're growing them. That seems very... Yeah, lack of forward thinking. Almost arrogant in a way, I suppose. I mean, that was the point. Wakanda, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're this arrogant nation resting on their laurels and not appreciating the fact that the world's getting bigger outside of them. Yeah. So there's all that, but I was fine with it at the time. I was wondering if they could have done like an X-Men type thing, you know, in almost every X-Men film you get Xavier incapacitated this team have to deal with things without them. Yeah. That's in the early X-Men films anyway, the original trilogy. There's another podcast I listen to that refer to it as Professor Xing someone, as in you just knock them out <laughs> for half the film. Yes, I like that, yes. <laughs> so we can steal that because imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, I guess. <laughs> My final thoughts are, I really like the film. I think it's one of the strongest entries in Phase 4. I haven't done a ranking because I never really do that. I just can't be bothered. We've done a ranking once on this podcast when we did yeah. the MCU up to Infinity War ranking, which was fun. But I don't really make lists in that way. But this would be floating around the top of Phase 4. 
Oh, especially sure. just centering on the films. I know I'm in the minority, but I really liked Eternals, and I really enjoyed Shang-Chi as well. Thor is at my bottom, so I would say top three for Eternal, Shang-Chi, and Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, for sure. I enjoyed a lot of the TV more than I expected, but I'm not really a ranking kind of person. I feel like it takes the fun out of actually enjoying some things. It's reducing it down, isn't it, to this yeah. metric of worst to best do i like this better it doesn't matter to me if i liked something better than another thing it's how much did i enjoy this particular movie or tv show or whatever sometimes comparisons can be useful but it's not the way that i'm always thinking about stuff definitely but i liked it a lot and i really like this subset of the marvel universe i love how fleshed out wakanda is as a place i don't know if that tv show is still in the works or not one that's going to be set within Wakanda. I don't know what that would be, but it seems like mm. there's enough there to give you something. There's an actual nation there. You get the sense of a nation. We talked about Asgard and Tolokan in this film are both quite singular in terms of what you actually see of them. And then in the case of Asgard, as we said, they expect you to believe that, oh, look, there's all these common people that aren't anywhere near the palace that we have to invest in now for the purposes yeah. of this. But Wakanda's great and the characters in it are great. And obviously it's a terrible shame it's a terrible tragedy what happened to Chadwick Boseman and I'm not just saying that because oh we don't get T'Challa in these films anymore it's a tragedy that such a young and gifted actor was taken so early because he was definitely on a trajectory towards greatness in terms of his performances before Black Panther he played James Brown and things he was of the level of the Heath Ledgers of the world a career cut too short where you can really see the potential he would have been the next Denzel Washington yeah. Serious and dramatic, but also open to doing blockbusters, open to doing whatever, but always with a sincerity and the power of a really good performer. It's such a shame. Sometimes you can really tell what the potential is lost when an actor dies young. I felt this way about Anton Yelchin when he died. Oh, yeah. I think we would have seen some truly great performances from him on projects small and big and all sorts. And it's just a big gloss and sadness that he's gone. I was reading actually, I think it was a Twitter thing about how Bozeman was sick before he even filmed the first one and how he felt like he needed to do that because otherwise he would not have gotten the part. And I can see that. I can see studio execs and whoever being like, oh, but you're sick though. Both out of, hey, you should take care of yourself. And also we can't invest in someone that might just die at any moment. We're losing Robert Downey Jr. soon. We're going to need someone to take this franchise forward and you're it. Yeah. Just gives a lot of pause for thought about how we treat illness, especially within the framework of you need to invest and recoup your money as a business because that's what a lot of these film things are. But also, is there a better way of working with people who want to work but they're sick or they're chronically ill or disabled just because they're not someone's perfect vision of oh yeah you're always going to get us our money back we need to be better about these things and hire more diversely the constant fear machine of hollywood of oh but what if i don't make my money back so many creative decisions are driven by this kind of logic definitely i'm glad we got bozeman's black panther it just came at great cost to him personally and that sucks it sucks that it had to be that way and by all accounts i think he expected to get better anyway i think he expected to beat it don't know the ins and outs of it but it seemed like there was every confidence that it was going to be possible to beat it and sometimes it is statistically there's a good chance you'll make it through this but obviously mm -hmm. you have the 
people that just don't. It just happens. And there's really nothing you can do about it. It's just the fact of life. I hadn't seen him in an awful lot. I have seen the James Brown film and he'd done a couple other culturally important projects as well. Yeah, he was in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, and then I thought it was okay, actually, but forget how many Bridges the title is, but something Bridges, where he plays a New York City cop. Oh, yes. I think it's okay. A lot of people hate it, but I thought it was fine. But I remember thinking when I watched it that it was weird hearing them without the African accent. <laughs> and I feel like that with all these actors, or most of these actors. You forget he's actually American? Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same with all of them. I saw Letitia Wright in something fairly mm. recently. And that stood out to me. I didn't realise it was her at first for that reason. Yeah, you forget she's actually British. (laughs) Angela Bassett, it doesn't surprise me because I've seen her in tons of things before this. Yeah, I felt that way about a few people. I forget James McAvoy is Scottish. (laughs) Until you hear him in something where he's just as himself. And I'm like, oh God, yeah, no, (laughs) of course you're Scottish. How could I ever possibly forget? David Tennant, because he was always talking in the doctor accent. Yes. The commitment to the African accents in these films is impressive though yeah the dialect coaching was great in this first off the way that they amalgamated a bunch of different cultural elements to create the wakandan accent or whatever that was supposed to be they were trained and they worked hard and they got it to sound perfect very very good that's the beauty of it not being a real accent as such it's one that's made up for the project itself is it doesn't have to be 100% accurate to something else. Yeah, because that wouldn't be doing it a service either. You mitigate any criticisms about dodgy accents because it's, oh, this is how it's supposed to sound. So, never mind. Isn't this weird aside? It's whenever I see the council member that has the lip disc in, I just can't help but think about how painful that would have been. I think it's painful at the beginning, but then after it's not. So, at this point, the man is fine. Yeah, but I imagine the actual process of getting this done would have been horrendous. Just something to think about. Also, there was a Simpsons joke where Bart gets it done when he's in Africa. Thought about that at the time as well. Bart, I told you not to get your lip disced. Anyway, anything final? You've done your wrap up, but in case that's spurred anything. No, that's it for me, thank you. Cool. Okay, well, that's me as well. I'd like to film and look forward to seeing more of Wakanda. And I'm still on the Marvel train. I'm not fatigued like some people seem to be. Although I do understand the fatigue because there's tons of stuff. Even Aaron, he's being selective about what stuff he'll watch now. He'll see all the films and then TV shows. He says he'll give an episode or two and then make a decision after that, which I think is perfectly valid. So we're back at the, you don't have to watch everything part of the conversation now, which is interesting. Whereas it used to be, you have to watch everything in case they'll say something important that you miss. But now it's, nah, just watch what you want. We get it. There's a lot of this. Yeah, I've told you what I don't like is the element of homework that exists now. (laughs) I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. But then if you want a shared universe, that's kind of part of it. So you either have one or you don't. Yeah. The fact is you can have pockets like this that don't have to connect to other stuff. Some will invariably require more homework than others. Thunderbolts, for example, that's a bit of a homework film, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because yes. everybody's come from other things. But anyway, that was our chat about Black Panther Wakanda forever. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, please do subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anywhere you get your podcast, you'll find this. And most of them now have inbuilt rating systems where you can give us a rating and a comment. There's usually a number associated with that. And Kat, what number would you like the listeners to give us on those platforms? I would like five out of five Wakandan Spears, please. Wakandan Spears, but I was thinking it might have been heart-shaped herbs. 
We need five of those. Oh, that too. Yes, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> They're in short supply, so please give us five of them so we can all have superpowers. That would be great. And can go to the ancestral plane and see who we get to talk to. That might be fun. <laughs> if you want to discuss Wakanda Forever, the Marvel Universe, anything really, get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter for the moment on New Before Blog or leave us a comment on newbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on New Before Pod. Mm-hmm.